0: Welcome back to Project Research. My name is Garrett Burnett and I will be your host today. I currently serve as a research ambassador for the Office of Undergraduate Research at the University of Alabama, and I have the wonderful honor of speaking to Dr. Cynthia Peacock today. Dr. Peacock received her BFA from the University of Montevallo before pursuing a master's degree in communication studies at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, and finally receiving her PhD from UT Austin in political communication. Dr. Peacock currently serves as an assistant professor at the University of Alabama, teaching in the Department of Communication Studies. With all that being said, I would like to welcome Dr. Peacock to the podcast today. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Of course, we're so excited to have the opportunity to speak with you today. Um, We're going to go ahead and dive into talking to some of your different research projects and what it looks like for an undergraduate student to work in a lab or work with you So we just have some great questions to ask you, and we're really excited for the opportunity to speak with you today.
1: Great. I'm looking forward to it.
0: All right. The first question we're going to dive into is, on paper, it appears that you've had a rather non-traditional path to research as a career. What led you to pursue a master's degree in communication studies and finally a Ph.D. in political communication after, after first pursuing a Bachelor of Fine Arts?
1: That's a great question. And I tell my students all the time, it's okay if you don't yet know what you want to do for the rest of your life. Um, When I graduated with my bachelor's degree, I was 22 years old and I certainly didn't know yet what I wanted to do. So I tried out some different things and worked for a few years and um, ended up applying for a corporate communication job. And when I did, they said, we like you, but we wish you had a degree in communication. And at that point, I'd never even heard of a degree in communication, so I was very interested. After that, I looked into it, found um, the program at UAB and started taking classes there and had the um, fortune of having an excellent professor there who became um, a a great mentor for me, who encouraged me to get my master's degree and even to go ahead and pursue a PhD. So having a great mentor and a curiosity and a good experience in the field.
0: I think you definitely stated it best by saying what our mission kind of is at the Office of Undergraduate Research as well. Um, Not everyone's path looks the same. A lot of people have more non-traditional approaches and whatever the sense of the word traditional means anymore to what research looks like or what research even looks like as a career as you said um people may be 22 leaving undergrad and they have no idea what they want to <laughs> do but that that's completely fine like even I like I have kind of a plan of what I want to do but mm-hmm. what's it going to look like in two years when I graduate I have no idea it's everything's always shifting and I I'm up for change, though, so that's good, I guess. Yeah,
1: I think that's really true. And it's okay to have a lot of different interests and try them out. I mean, I, the interest that I had in political communication was always there, but I just hadn't had the opportunity um, to really see it through and, and look at it as an area of study and potentially a career until later.
0: Oh yeah, that definitely makes a lot of sense. Um, So how did you get started in research? Obviously your career is now as a researcher and professor. Um, What kind of led you to think, this is what I want to do for a career?
1: Yeah, well, I knew that I enjoyed teaching and I liked being in the classroom. I got my first opportunity to do that during um, my master's program. And um, a lot of people, you know, some people go into their Ph.D. program already having some research experience and knowing what they want to study. And a lot of people go into their Ph.D. program because they're interested in learning more about the field and perhaps they want to teach at the university level. Um, so as far as getting started in research, my first um The first time I was able to do that was in my master's program and just kind of getting started on using secondary data. So not really gathering data or really designing my projects, Um, but it was a good introduction. And so by the time I started my Ph.D. program where research is a a, a high expectation, um, then I knew the sort of stuff I wanted to study. I thought a lot, read a lot about the area had questions in mind, and then pursuing my PhD, I was taking, you know, methods classes, quantitative methods, qualitative methods, and learning how to design and ask, uh, learn how to answer the questions that I had had. So that was really exciting for me, and I liked it immediately, even though it's hard. There's so much to think about when you're designing a project and seeing it through and it's time intensive and, and all of those things. Um, but the more you do it, the easier it gets. And the more I did it, the more I enjoyed it and the more I wanted to do.
0: Yeah, that's super interesting. Um, what was your first kind of research project you started? Obviously, you said you started doing your master's working on secondary data. What kind of project was that? How did it look? Oh,
1: gosh, I'll have to think back here. Um, (laughs) The one I'm thinking of the very first project I remember working on was looking at um, partisanship and voting and sort of demographic profiles. So the education, income, etc. that sort of predicts our partisanship.
0: That's super interesting. (laughs) I'm obviously very interested in all of your research. I've read through your research projects. I remember when you first came in and talked to our Emerging Scholars Program. I asked a couple different questions about hyperpartisan news sources because yes. that's the um, what I was most interested in. Yes. So that leads us to our next question. Obviously, you've had quite the collection of research ranging from hyperpartisan news consumption and its effects on affected involvement to a collaborative study looking at romantic relationships among couples with differing political beliefs, or even a focus study about women in the comment sections yes. of online news sorts news sites. Um, What would you say, which piece of research are you most proud of at this point?
1: That is such a tough question. I would say.
0: Oh, yeah, definitely.
1: (laughs) I would say probably I I have an article uh, called Not Talking Politics. And that one I'm really personally proud of and attached to because it came out of my dissertation work, which was, you know, a, a long and Arduous uh, (laughs) experience, but um, I really liked that because I did it on my own. Well, as much as you do anything on your own, of course, with the help of of my advisor (laughs) and others, but um, kind of coming up with the idea on my own, gathering the data, analyzing all the responses from people about why they avoid expressing their political opinions and really feeling like I was offering something to the field of political communication that wasn't there already. So that's a piece that I personally like a lot.
0: Yeah, that's super interesting. I'm definitely going to read more about that one. Just because I obviously like what you're talking about. That's why I brought you on the podcast. So anything you're producing, I'm definitely going to read through in the future. Oh, thanks. <laughs> um, now leading to our next question, it seems as if politics are an ever-shifting landscape in the United States, even with the most recent general election, politics are more different than I think they've ever been in their recent history that I'm aware of. Um, so what have you learned about your research over time? And did you ever have to modify your research due to different political situations?
1: Um, absolutely. So I'll answer the first part. What I've learned and what I try to convey to my students in political communication is that the landscape is changing all the time. Um, Because political communication is so dependent on media and technology, right? The way we get information, the way um, we understand politics. And with that changing all the time, there is always space for new studies and always room for new investigations into things that maybe have been studied in the past, but in a different media environment. Um, and it 's not just a media environment, our cultural environment so as as people change and generations sort of move up, um, our expectations sometimes don 't don 't hold up, and we have to do studies over again in the light of a new culture, new generations, new technologies. so I find that really exciting, but also um, you can't really predict what's going to happen in the future, so you have to be flexible in the types of studies that you do. Um, mm-hmm. Now, ask me the second part again.
0: Um, did you ever have to modify your research due to do different political situations? Yeah,
1: absolutely. So I had um, a study with co-authors at the University of Texas where we were. Um, we did an online experiment, So now you don't have to come into the lab for an experiment. I can design experiments and have um, participants from all over the country do them just because they're um, online. So we had this experiment Mm -hmm. and it was dependent. We were testing whether um, labels, news labels actually matter. So if you tell people this is news, this is opinion, this is sponsored content, do they see those labels and does it actually make a difference in how they read the news article? And the news article that I'd chosen um, actually was uh, about our ongoing conflict in Afghanistan. And the very day that I fielded the study, I mean, this has obviously been going on for well, you know, over a decade. And the day I fielded the study, there was a ceasefire that got a lot of attention and was in the media. And that really, I mean, that's what the article was about in in the study. So Mm -hmm. I had to stop it and then change the article and then field the study again. And that's the kind of thing that you have to be ready for. If you're doing an experiment and something happens out in the real world that affects the way your stimuli will be perceived by your participants, then you really have to be thoughtful. And even if you lost you know, money and time on fielding it, you, you want to be really careful that you're getting the best data you can and, and you have to be flexible to um, handle those sorts of things.
0: And obviously, since you're working with news outlets and different sources, it could change every day and you never know what the news is going to be. Absolutely. So modifying and being flexible. Yeah, being flexible in your line of research is critical, it seems. Absolutely. Um, yes. So the next question we're going to lead into is before listening to you talk about re- your research specifically last spring, I had never considered many of the subjects that you focus on. Now that I've read through many of your publications and I've taken a great interest in your hyperpartisan news work, with that being said, many people try to avoid politics, especially following the most recent presidential election. Why do you think that your research truly matters and more people should be aware of it?
1: Yeah, I think um, the hyperpartisan project that you've talked about, just for folks listening, um, this was a study meant to sort of investigate why people use hyperpartisan news sites. And I'm talking about news and kind of quote-unquote news information that comes from really partisan sources really on the fringe far left and far right and usually not even a news organization they commonly exist just as facebook pages um, things that are meant to be shared in on people's social media and i was interested in looking into this because i was concerned um, about the nature and the popularity of this news. So I kept seeing it in my feed and seeing people in um, in my social network posting things that I thought, gosh, that is not true. It's highly partisan. It's meant to get you upset. And um, it's really just poor quality news. So I was concerned about how many people were using this and the influence that it might have with people getting highly partisan misinformation. So, we did a study and asked people, you know, what, what they were getting access to and if they, you know, their trust in news, et cetera. And I think it's really important now more than ever because, I mean, look at uh, January 6th and all the things that have taken place politically. I mean, it, mm-hmm. in my opinion, that those things are highly a result of hyper partisan news use and misinformation. And it's hard to blame people for being sort of the product of a really dangerous news environment where things that you think are true are not, and they're meant to arouse your partisan feelings. Um, and we see really scary outcomes sometimes. So I think that it's still more important than ever to be looking at this type of hyper-partisan news.
0: Yeah, that's definitely really interesting. Uh, even with the most recent um, January 6th events, like, What people say, I think, on the news truly matters. And people need to understand what people say and take everything, even with a grain of salt, in my opinion, to understand that there are different perspectives. There's different opinions. And I think it's really important that people are aware of that. Yeah, different
1: perspectives and opinions for sure. So, But in addition to that, realizing that so a lot of information that's out there um, is there for, not necessarily for reasons of informing people. So when I was looking at oh, those definitely. hyperpartisan partisan sites, there were, you know, there was this guy who owned a far left-leaning one and a far right-leaning one, the same person. And he, w- he essentially was not running these sites for any ideological purpose. He was running them to make money and they were clickbait sites and he it, it it they were merely there as money makers for him and so i think if people would think about sort of the motives potentially behind the things they're seeing online or the sources they're using then that would be really helpful
0: yeah definitely What kind of sites do you see that host the most hyperpartisan pages? Is it like Facebook, Twitter? Like, what kind of social media platforms? Yeah,
1: so Facebook, I I mean, I couldn't give you a good quantity number for who's the worst offender for this. But but a lot of these (laughs) were made. I was studying sort of the 2016 election uh, time period. So particularly then, when I did that study, Facebook was, was where it was at. Um, a lot of these sites were purely existed on Facebook as Facebook pages. So um, it's mm-hmm. just for someone in the business of making these sites and getting clicks, Facebook is perfect because it can be shared through social networks. It's free for people to use. There's no um, uh, sort of regulation on the content that you can put on on pages and So Facebook really allows for this kind of thing to flourish.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting that it does boil down to mostly Facebook. I feel like it's um, very easy to use Facebook and navigate it. It's kind of built for the users. Mm -hmm. So it's easy to set up a page and then just spread it quickly. Now shifting gears a little bit, um, what recommendations would you give to a new student starting research or looking to get involved in research as an undergraduate student?
1: I think probably the best thing to do is find someone who's doing research that you're interested in on campus and reach out to that person. We have such a fantastic scholarly community at the University of Alabama, and whatever a student's interests are, there's probably someone studying it on campus. So I would say take advantage of this time when you're a student on campus. I mean, most professors are more than happy to get an email from a student who's interested in the same thing they are. We spend a lot of time studying this stuff. We think it's important. We're devoted to it. And so when a student reaches out and says they're interested as well, generally they will be welcomed. So I would just encourage students to reach out to um, professors who are doing the type of research they're interested in and meet with them. Go by, have a chat with them ask if there are projects that they need help with or things they should be reading. Um, and I think you'll find that that faculty will be really happy to do that.
0: Oh yeah, that's definitely welcomed advice. I know we have a lot of students come through the Office of Undergraduate Research at Alabama, and they're a little concerned about reaching out to professors, they don't know if they wanna, like they think they might be wasting professor's time just being an undergraduate. But obviously, with your advice, you're saying students should reach out to those professors and just give it a shot and really prove that they're interested in their work. Absolutely.
1: There's nothing to lose there. You know, send an email. Of course, usually I would say, you know, professors' office hours are posted. You could always go by and visit them during office hours. I think it's also great. I prefer an email. I like appointments. And obviously, during COVID times, most people aren't in their office. So, you know, it doesn't cost anything to just send an email and let them know uh, that you're interested. And I think that's a great place to start.
0: Yeah, there's absolutely nothing to lose, yeah. like you said. If you're interested in something, you might as well try to jump absolutely. on it you can. Within your project specifically, what kind of opportunities do undergraduate students have with your work? So I've
1: worked with several different undergraduate students here at Alabama in different parts of their research process. So um, as you know, with Emerging Scholars, it just depends on when they come to me and where I am in a particular project. Yes. So one, I would say I welcome... I, You know, if anyone's interested, they definitely should reach out to me and I would be glad to chat with them or see if they're interested in working on a project. It just depends on where I am in a project. So I had an undergraduate student work with me at the very beginning um, and sort of brainstorming ideas, talking about the study I wanted to do. This is with the hyperpartisan study and really just help me think about what's out there and what questions we should ask. And then even talking through sort of design and um, of the study. And then I've had students who will come to me later after I've already gathered data, and I'll usually share with them, like, th- this is the relationship I'm looking at. And maybe they might help, you know, write a literature review and, uh, you know, seek out um, other work that's in a similar vein. They might help um, write a discussion about why we found the things that we did, what explains our findings. So there are all sorts of different ways to plug in, whether it's research design or interpretation or writing or collecting data, um, all sorts of different places to plug in.
0: Oh, that's really good that there's just a wide berth of opportunity for Yeah, definitely. To students. Have you and your students had the opportunity to travel for your research? I know a lot of our listeners are interested in things Um, like that.
1: Yeah. So I was thinking about uh, uh, traveling, of course, because we're not doing any traveling right now, which is so unfortunate. I would say most of the travel that I've done has been to present research at conferences. So that's one of the great things. Conferences are just a wonderful place to go and network with other people in the field see a lot, hear about a lot of research happening currently, um, this is kind of beside your question, but the, the amount of time it takes for a study to be done and then go through peer review and actually come out as a publication is so long that conferences really allow you the mm-hmm. opportunity to hear about work that's happening right now. Um, and so traveling to conferences is great, and that's where most of my travel happens. I always attend National Communication Association's annual meeting. And so just going all over the U.S., they've been in Dallas, Salt Lake City, Las Vegas, New Orleans, Philadelphia. So seeing lots of places in the U.S., getting to visit. And then I also attend the International Communication Association's annual conference. And every other year that's in the U.S., but a couple of years ago it was in Czech Republic, and that was a fantastic trip, getting to travel and present research there. Um, One other way I've traveled having to do with research was I took a group of graduate students from the College of Communication and Information Sciences to Iowa during the Iowa caucuses. And so we traveled um, to Iowa, went to a ton of political rallies, observed the Iowa caucuses as they were taking place and um, produced a piece of research that's already been published from that. So that was a really exciting one too
0: that's an incredible opportunity for graduate students to get just to travel and see exactly what the Iowa caucuses look like. I think a lot of people that are interested in politics want to know what it looks like, what the rallies look like. It's just something I would like to do. Absolutely. And after
1: doing that, um, to be honest, that was my first experience traveling with students to collect data. And it was so much fun and such an exciting way to sort of be on the ground watching the things that we study take place right in front of us. And so I'm definitely interested in um, doing more of those sort of travel classes. Experiential learning is fantastic.
0: Oh, yeah, that's incredible. Um, I'm going to go and wrap it up with just one final question that I'm sure a lot of our listeners who are mostly undergraduate students want to know. What qualities do you see in successful undergraduate researchers? I
1: would say the most important quality is curiosity. Is there something that you see in your daily life or experience that you wonder, Why does that happen? Or what's going on here? Or what makes that work? I think that's really all you need to get started in research. You will learn all of the skills and styles and all the other things you need to know to do a project, but no one can teach curiosity. And so I think if you have that and there's some phenomena that you want to know more about, um, then you have a little bit of a researcher in you and you should nurture that.
0: Thank you so much for speaking with me. That's such a great response and I think a great way to end this out that students with curiosity need to go ahead and try their best to try research and see if it's for them. I understand it may not be for everybody, but they might as well try it while they're here. Um, Thank you so much for speaking with me today. You've obviously provided great insights and advice for undergraduate researchers. And I really hope they take all this information to heart. And I would, I would also direct anyone that listened to the podcast today to, go ahead and look at Dr. Peacock's research. She does some incredible things that she talked about today. And she's doing really important research looking at politics. And it's something everyone should be aware of. So thank, thank you, you so, so much, much Dr. Garrett. Peacock. I really enjoyed it. Thank you.